Thank you for joining us for the Midweek Bible Study with Dr. David Wilson. Now let's join Dr. Wilson for a more in-depth study of the Word of God. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we haven't been there since last year. So because of that, I I, want to focus on verses 9 through 12, but I want to begin reading again in verse 1 because we're talking about the practicality here of putting your Christianity in practice. That's why he says, finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ in the Lord Jesus, that you should abound more and more just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Folks, isn't it interesting? Let me stop for just a second. Isn't it interesting, and I mentioned this last time we met on Wednesday night. He talks about it is the will of God for us to grow. And the first thing he talks about is immorality. You can't have sexual sin in your life and grow in the Lord like he wants you to. Have you ever thought about if sexual sin disappeared, can you, have you thought about how many ramifications that would have? Think about it. Abortions, pornography, divorce, adultery, fornication, um, child abuse, so many things spousal abuse, so many things around sexual sin. And it's rampant in our nation. It's ramp- you can't Think of all the clean movies to be on television if there's no sexual sin. And you actually wouldn't be afraid to watch commercials. You know, now you might find a good movie or a good television show, but if you've got children in your home, you're afraid for them to see the commercials. That was free. That's not tonight's message. Verse six says that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this manner because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we forewarned you and testified for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that you may walk properly among those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. One of the things I am grateful for is we don't have really any strife 
in this congregation that I know of. Now, we have differences of opinion, um, but we don't have any fights, and, we, and we, just don't, we just don't fight. You ever been in a church that did? <laughs> yeah, I got a lot of amens on that one, in case you're watching by line, online. Uh, Leslie Flynn penned a book called Great Church Fights. And in it, he wrote about the way people in different churches go after each other, all in the name of Jesus Christ. A young father heard a commotion out in his backyard. He looked outside and he saw his daughter and several playmates in a heated quarrel. And when he intervened, his his daughter said, Dad, it's, it's okay, we're just playing church. Most of the time, a church fight affects the young people the most. Well, we've looked at, and the reason I read the first eight verses, because it talks about a life that is pleasing toward God. And what we discovered was that this life was accomplished through us growing and pursuing godly desires. But tonight, I want to talk to you about being heavenly minded and earthly good. Have you ever heard anybody say, well, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good? Well, We're supposed to be heavenly minded and earthly good. This is really talking about how we live among other people. And so there's several truths here I want to call to your attention. The first one is that if we're going to be heavenly minded and earthly good, it includes Christ-like affection. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I write to you. Now, It's been a while since I told you. They're basically, in the Greek, four words for love. One is eros, which we get our word erotic. It refers to physical love. That's what most Americans think of when they think of love. That word's not used one time in the Bible. Eros, it's not in the scripture. And then there's the word that means family love, um, storge, or storge, S-T-O-R-G-E, which refers to family love. That word's also absent from the New Testament. But there are two words that are used, and one, one of them is philia, philadelphia, and the other one is agape, philia. It talks about a love like friends, and, and, and sometimes it's even used for marriage. Uh, it has some emotions in it. It is a, a feeling, a deep affection. But agape is not based on affection. Now, a lot of times affections go with it, but you don't use the word agape just because you feel love towards somebody. Agape is the kind of love that God has toward us. It's more of a choice, and it treats others as God would treat them regardless of how you feel about them. Now, what about today? What about the fact that you may not like some of the people who are leading this nation? How are we supposed to respond How would God respond? Does God love them? (laughs) Nobody's going to say any word. Nobody's going to say anything. Yeah, God loves them just as much as he loves you. Yeah, he loves Chuck Schumer. He loves Nancy Pelosi. He loves Joe Biden. Let's just name names. Kamala Harris. So how are we supposed to respond? Me, well, I'll get to that in a minute. It says... Paul reminds them, he says, 
brotherly love, we don't even need to write to you about this. Now, the word brotherly love comes from two words, philos, which are philia, which means deep affection, and adelphos, which means one born of the same womb. Now, if there's ever such thing as brotherly love or or a sibling love, that's what he's talking about. And you and I are all born from the same womb, spiritually speaking. God doesn't have different plans of salvation for every person. We are all saved the same way through Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection, and through faith in him. And so the word Philadelphia means tender affection owed to those who have been born of the same womb. Spiritually speaking, that means other people in Christ. Now, it's interesting how he writes this. He said, but concerning brotherly love, you don't really need any reason for me to bring it up, but I'm going to do it anyway. I said, I don't have to remind you of this because you already have this love in you because of Jesus Christ. God saved us all the same way. We had to be born again, John 3, 3. We were all born again in Christ, but to be born again means to receive a new life through personal faith in Jesus Christ. And God puts his spirit in you and his, one of the first fruits of the spirit is love. Makes you love people you don't like. Agape. Now, this Christ-like affection, there's several points I want to show you here. First of all, you are personally equipped. I've already alluded to this. You're taught by God. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Hmm. It's not a lesson learned in a classroom. It's learned through a relationship through Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 5 says, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The best way to learn a new language, I'm, I'm not one of those people that's gifted in learning another language, foreign language. Um, some people just grab it. I, I'm not one of those guys, it's not my gift. But I've been told that one of the best ways to learn a foreign language is to go live in the area where they speak that language. And then you have to learn it. Well, the same is true regarding love, the God's love. Obviously, he puts his spirit in us and he puts love in our hearts. But the best way to learn about God's love is to hang out with people who have God's love. A church. It's, love isn't taught, it's caught. And you learn to love by associating with loving people. Brotherly love is at the heart of the Christian faith. Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. So a church that is always fighting one another, that's not Christianity. I've been in those churches. It's especially true in small communities where everybody's kin to one another. I've been there. And y'all may be kin to one another, but there's enough other people in here to keep you straight. <laughs> you know I'm teasing you. Christ-like affection also is practically expressed. 
In verse 10, it says, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. Paul contends that love is not just a concept and it's not some kind of feeling towards somebody. It is practically expressed. How do we express love toward other people? When you take time to sit with a grieving friend or when you bend down to tie the shoelaces of a little child, when you work to spotlight the good that other people are doing, when you forgive an offense, when you take time to clean up a neighbor's yard after a storm, or when you take time to listen, to weep, or to share a joy, or to take someone food who is sick or grieving, or you take the kids of a single mother to give her a night off, or you take time to check the facts before you pass on any information about someone. You recognize that people have bad days and you cut them some slack. You give them some grace. Some people just don't get it. Some people are so childish. I, Reader's Digest, a lady wrote these words. She said, I once worked in a grocery store and often assisted elderly people when they came in. One woman shopped nearly every day asking for just a few items each time. And after a month, she said to me, I suppose you wonder why I'm here so often. You see, I live with my nephew. I can't stand him. And I'm not going to die and leave him with a refrigerator full of food. <laughs> I've met people like that. That is not the way Jesus wants us to live. In fact, the Lord doesn't, you can't help but have a, a concern and a, a desire to be with and to help other people. One other thing about Christ-like affection is that it is progressively enriched. Verse 10 says that you may increase more and more. It can always be improved. Paul said to the Thessalonians to express their, way, their love in even better ways. In other words, you never get to the place where you say, I finally am the most loving I can be. Now I can get on to something else. No, it's something that we work on all our lives. We continue to spread and show and practice love. By nature, we all struggle with it. We want to be loved. Everybody wants to be loved. But a lot of times we don't want to put ourselves out there in order to love others. We see this in marriages, we see it in families and neighborhoods and yeah, even churches. You see, to love somebody else means you take your eyes off yourself for a while and put them on someone else. It means that we should increase in our sympathy for those in need or we should be patient with those who are struggling or have tolerance toward those whom we disagree with. The most powerful recommendation for any church is this. George Barna Research Group was researching people who did not go to church. And he asked, they asked the question, what are you looking for in a church? And the answer was always the same. They are looking for a caring church. 
Not just a church, a friendly church or a relevant church or a church with plenty of programs for the kids and not just a church where the Bible's clearly taught and those are good and essential things but they are looking for a place where they can be loved for who they are and for who Jesus can make them and be deeply cared about. And when the people of the world find a place, they start standing in line to get in. So Christ-like affection, to be loving people, that's part of being heavenly-minded and earthly good. But there's a second truth there, and it involves what we want to do with our lives. I call it Christian ambition. It involves some ambition from our life. What, how should we want to live? How are we supposed to live in this society? He goes on to say in verse 11 that you aspire, your ambition, you want. You want to live, a, to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. So, what is your ambition in life? You got any? Have you quit having any? I remember a Charlie Brown cartoon. He's at bat, umpire says strike three, and he struck out again. He slumps over to the bench, and he's, he, he says, rats, I'll never be a big league player. I just don't have it. All my life I've dreamed of playing in the big leagues, but I, don't, but I know I'll never make it. And Lucy turns to console him. She's always such a source of comfort. Charlie Brown, she says, you're thinking way too far ahead. What you need to do is set yourself some more immediate goals. And he looks up and he said, yeah, you mean immediate goals? And she said, yeah, see if you can walk off the pitcher's mound without falling down. Some people have the wrong ambition to earn the hand of an Indian princess. The Indian brave was given a test of swimming across the lake underwater swimming across the lake underwater. As soon as he heard the task, he ran down to the shore with the entire Indian village tailing behind him. And when he got there, he saw that the lake was frozen over. So undaunted, he chopped a hole in the ice and jumped in. That was the last they ever saw of him. And in loving memory of this brave, the Indians named the lake after him. They call it Lake Stupid. What is your ambition? Well, Paul mentions it, this ought to be our ambition, first of all, to have a calm existence, to lead a quiet life, to aspire to lead a quiet life. The word quiet is a word that means Sabbath rest. It speaks of the ending of work, the end of conflict, of peace after war. And to be ambitious, Paul says, to live Quietly. Now that seems like an odd command for Christians who are supposed to go into all the world and spread the gospel. We're supposed to tell other people about Jesus. And, it's, and instead of advising us to go out and share our faith, Paul is saying you need to aspire to live a quiet life. Now that doesn't have anything to do with evangelism. Paul may be addressing three different problems here. 
One of them, he may, be, he may be saying we should be quiet rather than hurried. I did say the word means Sabbath rest. And instead of always running to and fro and never taking time to rest or trust in the Lord, it's the, the case of a quiet life is one that refuses to be run by calendars and schedules, but says, you know what? I'm going to spend some time with the Lord. It, it could also mean we should be quiet rather than anxious. Instead of constantly being upset about the circumstances of life, we should be people who trust that God is in control. Is this not applicable for today? It's the quiet that comes from a perfect trust. It's that sense of peace that a child has that when they're asleep in the arms of mom or dad, even during a thunderstorm, because they know their parents are going to protect them. That's the kind of quiet. Lord, I know I'm in a storm, but I'm, in your, I'm, I'm resting in your arms. And third, to be quiet means just that, to be quiet rather than obnoxious. Paul wants us to be steady rather than a fanatic in the way that we live our lives when these people push everyone away because they're so aggressive and it's harmful to the advancement of the gospel. Paul said we're supposed to share our faith but not to be in your face about it. You gotta do it with love. You're not gonna win any folks if you're trying to cram it in their face through Christianity. God wants our impact in society not to be hidden or secret, but to be there in such a way that people are attracted to the fact that you seem to be at peace even when there's a storm of life. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, translates this with two words. He says, stay calm. Stay calm. The sky's not falling. This is not the end of the world today. I've read the revelation, today's not the end of the world. It means to be less frantic, more settled in your life. Don't be flaky. Don't always be restless for something better in life. It also, to this Christian ambition means to have a concentrated effort. He, he says in verse 11 that you aspire to lead a quiet life and to mind your own business. Now, if you ever, have you ever wanted to quote this verse to anybody? Why don't you just mind your own business? I mean, after all, it is scriptural, isn't it? That's not how we use it, but when people ask nosy questions and they butt into your private conversations, when they give you unsolicited advice, you'd love to say, mind your own business. I don't think that's what he meant. He went, after, after all, if, we, if we're supposed to lead a quiet life, we're not going to tell somebody, mind your own business. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul talks about busybodies, and this may be what he has in mind here. He wants to get people to stay in their business. You, you, know, you know any busybodies? You know, ever know anybody that's just in everybody else's business? In a German village, true story. A German village held a contest to determine who the worst busybody was. And when they finally gave it to a certain woman, it was a vacation trip to Vienna. And when she left, all the people got some rest while she was gone. 
I believe there's a positive side of this. By minding our own business, we need to be focused on what God wants our own life. What's he wanting us to do? To spend our energies on what he's called us to do. He's given all of us something to do. All different gifts. And instead of criticizing what other people aren't doing or are doing or should be doing, we need to focus on what God wants us to do. That's what he's saying. God has a business for you. Focus on that. Grow in that area. Instead of being concerned about the rate of spiritual growth in someone else, are you growing spiritually? Instead of putting all the focus on other people, we need to look on our own spiritual lives. We need to combat the tendency to sit on the sidelines and criticize what everyone else is doing. God, what do you want me to do? Put me in the game. There's a third thing about Christian ambition, and that should be contributing employment. He says to work with your own hands. It didn't mean all of us are supposed to be the kind of people that work out there using our hands. He, he's saying that you need to make your own living. Now, now listen carefully. In other words, he's saying don't be a drain on society. Now, folks, there are exceptions. Obviously, if somebody can't work, Somebody no, no longer physically can work. That's, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about somebody like the guy who applied at the welfare office and they asked why he needed financial assistance. He said, I'm having trouble with my eyes. I can't see myself going to work. Well, there's a lot of people that just don't want to work. Now, disabilities and other issues, that's not what he's talking about. And folks, Social Security, we've paid into Social Security all our lives. That's not supposed to be a drain on society. That's the money that we paid in. So I don't consider that a drain on society. It's possible, very possible. In fact, I think he addresses it in 2 Corinthians. It's very possible that some people thought the return, in fact, I know it's possible because next week we're going to look at the rapture because verse 13 talks about those who died before Jesus returned. We're going to talk about the rapture next Wednesday night so you can tell everybody the rapture is going to occur next Wednesday night. <laughs> or we're going to talk about it. Just be careful how you tell them. But probably there were people who thought the return of Jesus was so imminent that they quit their jobs and were waiting on him to return or, or, or serving the Lord more fully and they were proving to be a drain on the Christian community. Here's a group of people that were heavenly minded and no earthly good. There are a lot of verses about this. Listen to Proverbs 18, 9. One who is slack in his work is brother to one who destroys. Proverbs 24, 33. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come upon you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. Proverbs 10, 4, he who gathers crops in summer is a wise son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. And then 2 Corinthians 3, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 13. 
In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is Right. Paul says, pull your own weight. There are going to be times when people are out of work, not because of their own choice. They're looking for jobs. You understand what he's talking about. He's talking about the person who has the opportunity to work. And he's saying, if you're a child of God, if you're a follower of Jesus, and you have the opportunity to work and the physical health to do it, and you're not retired and so forth, you need to work. There are some people, did you know God designed us to work? It's not a curse. A lot of people say, well, work is a curse because of the fall of Adam. No, Adam had a job before the fall. He was tending the earth. So God ordained us to work. Labor was never meant to be a drudgery. It was meant to be a way for us to fellowship with God and to share in the care of his creation. God wants us to work because it helps fulfill his purpose. Being heavenly minded and earthly good also illustrates consistent actions. Verse 12, that you walk properly toward those who are outside that you may lack nothing. Y'all do know that people are watching you. They watch where you live. They watch where you work. They watch how you conduct yourselves. They see how you are in the community. They... People are watching you, and when you aspire to lead a quiet life, to focus on what God wants you to do and work with your hands, it says that you gain the respect of, from others. You are paving the way for the gospel to be shared. That's why he says you may walk properly toward those who are outside. People respect you. They, they know, hey, you're a, you're a contributing part. Non-Christians will trust and respect you. On the negative side, don't be lazy and give the Christianity a black eye. On the positive side, you can make the Christianity beautiful by the way that you do your job. You should be the best worker. And remember, you're the only Bible some people will ever read. You're the only gospel some will ever hear. You're the only Christian someone may ever meet. And when they read and hear and see you, they look at your life. What do they see? They need to see the fact that you're part of something that's, that's of the Lord. The, the, the lowliest occupation. I, I don't know what that would be. But the lowliest occupation can become a powerful sermon when it's done with dignity and propriety and honesty and diligence and faithfulness. The common man who does his common job with uncommon grace will never lose his self-respect. Someone put it this way, the only way 
to show that Christianity is the best of all faiths is to show that it produces the best of all people. And they are the ones that live in the community. And when we Christians show our faith, it makes us better workers, it makes us truer friends, better neighbors, kinder people. That's when you're really preaching. You're preaching out in society. But it also gives respect for yourself. You're paying your way. All of us want to be independent. There's a good kind of independence that we strive for. We want to pay our own bills. We want to work from our hands. We don't want to have to steal or to borrow or to run up a huge credit card debt. (laughs) One man said that he told his friend, he said, my wife had plastic surgery. I destroyed all our credit cards. (laughs) So what you see in in this chapter, you see a holy life. You're free from immorality You see a harmonious life. You're always increasing in brotherly love. You see an honest life, living quietly, minding your own business, working with your hands. That's how we're supposed to live in the world. In the meantime, there's going to be tribulations. There's going to be sadness. Some of our loved ones are going to die before Jesus returns, and he addresses that beginning in verse 13, and we'll talk about the rapture and what all that means next Wednesday night. Unless the Lord does come, we won't talk about the rapture next Wednesday night. I want to tell you some good things quickly. We ran the Christmas Eve candlelight service 33 times on television and all different channels. We had at least five people indicate they received Jesus. By, you know, not everybody responds, obviously. Last Sunday, we had two people respond online in these services that accepted Christ and one that watched the venue accepted Christ. Three people saved last Sunday just online. I told you that we were ahead of our Lottie Moon Christmas offering. The goal was 325, $364,000 came in. (laughs) Isn't that good? Folks, I remember in 1988, the church budget was $300,000 for the year. And now we give more than that to Lottie Moon. God is good and... um, it's just because of God's people and God being so, God's people being so gracious. But I thought you would want to know that. Um, this Sunday, the title of my sermon is Living Happily Ever After. And it's not a fairy tale. <laughs> Let me pray for you. Thank you for being here tonight. Lord, I, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it can calm us down on a hectic day. It can reassure our lives that you're still in control. Thank you for telling us how we're supposed to live. We we know that we are the lights in this world of darkness, that because of you in our life, we're the lights of the world. 
And we pray that people would come to the lights of the world. I pray, Lord, for these families that have been devastated today. Uh, I pray that, God, you would somehow wake up people to the reality that headed the direction we're headed is not the right way. And I know there's a lot of feelings from both sides. So, Lord, we, we trust that somehow you'd send some kind of spiritual awakening to our land that they might, but people might, their hearts might change. Help us though, Lord, right here in this community in Lubbock, Texas, to live and aspire to live a life that rests in you, that focuses on what you want us to do personally and that we might contribute to society in a positive way. I thank you for these wonderful people tonight. I thank you for their faithfulness and their love. And thank you for a loving church, for loving people. I see them, Lord, demonstrating so many different ways the love that you've put in their heart. And thank you for these wonderful, this, this wonderful church and the loving people in it. We ask that you protect us. And when we come back Sunday, we ask God that it just be a glorious day. We thank you that there are some things still stable in our life. And at the top of the list is you. And so we, we trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again, folks, for being here. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to watch more live streams or additional Bible studies, please go to southcrestlive.tv. We hope to see you again next week.